Hello and welcome to the Methades Bible Study Podcast. Methades is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methades encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. All right, so last week uh, we got in a little bit of trouble with our writer here because he was giving us some strong admonition against mental sluggishness due to spiritual immaturity, laziness, and just a general sense of apathy. Uh, He was reminding the church that they ought to be teachers with a firm grasp of the ABCs of the faith, but instead they have to keep hearing the same basic elementary things over and over. And then he becomes worried, and he tells them that he worries that they're not prepared to hear the important doctrines related to Christ's eternal priesthood because they don't have a firm grasp on the basics. So this week, we finally turn to the beginning of our writer's exploration of the Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, he gives us this all the way through chapter 7. We're only going to get about halfway through that this morning. But chapter 6, verses 11 to 12, ended with this exhortation to be diligent so that the hope given to be readers will be realized and that they will inherit the promises through their faith and their patience. And as we come to verses 13 to 20 this morning, those verses consider the nature of God's promise, the need for patience to obtain the promise, and the hope that belongs to believers by virtue of the promise. And then we will, of course, go into this discussion of Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood. So let's start reading there in chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see in verse 13 that this notion of promise links this section back to the section that we looked at last week. Believers are encouraged in verse 12 to inherit the promises through faith and patience, and now the author wants them to contemplate the nature of the promise and the awesomeness and faithfulness of the one who made it by reflecting now on the promise that's been made to Abraham. So we have this promise to Abraham, the so-called Abrahamic covenant, which is central to Genesis. What's included in this is the promise of land, the promise of offspring, and the promise of universal blessing. And of course, it is through this initial covenant that God makes with Abraham that the offspring of the woman will triumph over the serpent in the person of Christ. Through this Abrahamic covenant as well, blessing is promised for the whole world. And the New Testament claims that that blessing is made a reality in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the focus then is on Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, where God swears to Abraham that he will bless them. This comes after the most dramatic and terrifying test in Abraham's life, the sacrifice of Isaac. 
And it's so interesting because Abraham takes the Lord at his word and is prepared to sacrifice the son of the promise if God so demands. And it is after his obedience then that the Lord pronounces the words of promise, which now our writer in Hebrews is reflecting on. And the purpose here is on the certainty of God's promise. But the writer sort of asks, by what did God swear? On what basis does he affirm his truthfulness? And then he goes on to say, there's no being greater than God himself because God is perfect. And since he is perfect and he possesses all perfections in himself, God swore by himself. He's the very definition of greatness and thereby he couldn't swear by any higher entity. So the oath quoted here is from Genesis chapter 22 verses 17 to 18 wherein God assures Abraham that he will bless him and multiply his offspring. But the writer cuts off the citation. So in Genesis 17, uh, chapter 22, verses 17 to 18, it reads, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So it follows that Abraham's offspring will multiply like the stars of heaven and that his offspring will inherit the cities of his enemies and that the blessing will extend to all peoples. So the link in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 between bless and then in verse 14 promise shows that these two terms mutually interpret each other. What do I mean by that? God's promise was accompanied by an oath. It's not an ordinary promise because it is underscored by an oath, meaning it will surely come to pass. In, in effect, it's one of these God said it, I believe it moments. Now the oath differs from the promise because the oath is accompanied by an action which secures the promise. And so, of course, that oath is fulfilled in present ways to Abraham, and it's fulfilled in present ways to the nation of Israel, but it's fulfilled ultimately in the person and work of Christ. So in verse 15, what we've been learning in Hebrews is that there is a mutual responsibility between God and man. That God's blessings require, in some sense, an action on man's part. So when we turn to verse 15, we shouldn't be surprised to see a reference here not to the virtue of the promise of God, but rather to the response of Abraham, affirming that he obtained the promise because he was patient. Now this is a point where our author expects us to be intimately familiar with the story of Abraham and no doubt the people he's writing to would have been. And so in this one verse he sort of encapsulates the rest of the narrative here. The patience that he's referring to is the patience of Abraham who waited into old age for God to bless him with a son. And so the birth of Isaac then is the promise that Abraham has waited for and he endured in patience. But how often it seemed, no doubt, to him as if the promise would not be realized because it took so long for Isaac to come. And then after he arrives, God asks him to sacrifice him. And yet Abraham, in obedience, goes and does so anyway. So the writer wants his readers to imitate the patience of Abraham. God's promises aren't a charade. They're not a gimmick to buy your faith and belief, but they're real. And the writer wants his readers, including us, 
to continue to believe even when our situation suggests that God's promises are false. And there's not a one of us in here this morning, I don't think, who can sit back and say you've never questioned the veracity of God's promises. We have all at one point or another questioned what we believe and why we believe it. But the writer here says, be patient, trust. And as we'll see, he'll give us some reason why we should trust. But what does this have to do with the broad picture that we've been studying? I mean, how does this fit with Melchizedek? Some of y'all are probably saying, Ian, you've promised us mysterious Melchizedek, but where is he? And I want to be snarky and say we'll have patience. Uh, but it won't take us too long. Uh, but in actual fact here, the promise to Abraham is the promise to the people. As we said in verse 13, the Abrahamic promise contains the idea that the whole world is going to be blessed. And so in chapter 2, when we were looking there, in verses 5 to 9, we said the rule over the entire world, which was destined for human beings, will be realized through Abraham's offspring. And as we still said, again, in chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, that all of those who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus share in that promise. But then when we turn to verses 16 and 17, we see the author's not done with this business of God taking an oath. He goes through this sort of explication that when human beings swear an oath in order to underline the certainty and the solemnity of their words, they swear by someone or something greater than themselves. The supreme oath in Israel was as surely as Yahweh lives. Whatever he wanted to say after that. And we, we see that Abraham himself swore by God and he made others to do the same. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 22, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And then again in Genesis 24, verse 3, there he's talking, he says, That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So Abraham himself swears by God. But our author tells us that God has none greater than himself by whom to swear. So when he wishes to confirm his promise, he swears by himself. Now, this prepares us for the significance of the fact that God's promise regarding the Melchizedekian priesthood is similarly confirmed by an oath. We see there in Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the bare word of God is guarantee enough, but by swearing by himself, he actually gives us double assurance. Now, the early church historian Philo remarks on this passage in Genesis, saying, There is nothing amiss in God's bearing witness to himself, for who else would be capable of bearing witness to him? He alone shall make any affirmation regarding himself, since he alone has unerringly exact knowledge of his own nature. God alone, therefore, is the strongest security, first for himself, and in the next place for his deeds also, so that he naturally swore by himself when giving assurance regarding himself, a thing impossible for anyone else. The shorthand version of that, nobody knows God as well as God knows God. So when God swears by himself, he swears by the totality of himself. And so God shows more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. Now, who are they? Is that the patriarchs? No, the heirs of the promise are the readers of this letter. 
They are those who experienced in the gospel the fulfillment of the oath God swore to Abraham. When we get to verse 18, we see that he swears by these two unchangeable things. They are the promise of God, and he tells us it is impossible for God to lie, and then again, the oath by which his promise is confirmed. Now, the, the comfort and the consolation of the readers here is the author's purpose. And so he reminds us and them that God cannot lie. But to this promise, he adds his oath. And that's not to give substance to God's truthfulness or to somehow prove that beyond ways that God already exists as truth. But it is given for the sake of humans to underscore God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness in his covenant, God's faithfulness in his promises to his people. So in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, we see God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? If you remember a while back when we did our study on the doctrine of God, we talked about God's omnipotence and God's immutability. God is not a man. He has all knowledge. Therefore, he's not going to lie. He's not going to change his mind. Why? Because he's immutable. He's perfect. So what the writer here is telling us in, in some sense is that we are refugees from the sinking ship of this present world order which is so soon to disappear. But our hope is actually fixed on this eternal order where the promises of God are made good to his people forever. And then our hope is our spiritual anchor. In verse 19, in fact, why don't we go back and look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the thinner place behind the curtain. We are held steadfast by the immovable throne of God himself, established in the heavenly holy of holies. And this idea of the heavenly holy of holies, I have this notion of the veil here, this is the counterpart in the eternal order to the inner sanctuary of the wilderness tabernacle. So we've talked about the ways that this writer brings in the Old Testament narrative, the Old Testament priest, uh, priestly system, uh, Levitical system, and so forth, and he's doing it again here. He's separating the heavenly holy of holies, and or drawing a comparison to the heavenly holy of holies and the inner sanctuary of the wilderness tabernacle. Now the inner sanctuary is shut off from the outer sanctuary by a heavy curtain behind which the invisible presence of the God of Israel dwells. And so that's what our writer here means by inner place. We could also turn to Leviticus chapter 16 where we see a discussion of the Day of Atonement, which is the only day in the year that the high priests actually go into the Holy of Holies. For the writer, again, the Holy of Holies represents the very presence of God himself. So the hope of believers is like an anchor that reaches within the veil and brings them into contact with God himself. And the old way, access to God was limited to only one day a year and to only one person, the high priest. But as we're going to see when we get to chapter 10, believers now have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. In verse 20, he tells us that believers cannot merit access to God's presence. Such access is given to them only because Jesus is their Melchizedekian high priest. As high priest, he enters into God's presence, and he offers his own blood to secure access to God for believers. 
and the hope of believers then is anchored in the work of Jesus as high priest. So in his Melchizedekian role, Jesus has atoned for sin so that believers can enter God's presence joyfully and boldly. Now he also says that Jesus is the forerunner. You could also translate that as precursor if you're having um, sort of alarm bells going off of John the Baptist in the back of your mind. Yes, that was said of him before Christ. And so now we have Jesus as the forerunner in the presence of God. We've identified him elsewhere as the pioneer of our salvation. All of that to say the hope of believers depends on the atoning work of the cross. Do not look to yourselves, our writer says, but look to the cross of Jesus. And so now we get to Melchizedek, or what I like to call the story of mysterious Mel. Uh, we'll see why I call it that in a minute. Uh, so let's read there, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also uh, tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. No, I skipped a line. Though these are also... All right, did I just type that wrong? I'm going to go to the Bible instead of trying to read what I wrote. That's probably better anyway. All right. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Preacher, it's not just you. <laughs> All right, so what's going on in this section? Because this is pretty well I mean, a clean break, and he just kind of starts over with something else here. But the writer's desire has been to explain the significance of Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood. For the hope and the confidence of the readers is based on Jesus' entering the presence of God for them. But before unfolding the significance of this priesthood, he has warned the readers about the dangers of spiritual sluggishness, which we saw last week. He says, if they fall away, they will not receive the blessings God has promised. But now that he's given them the warning... And now that he's done this explication that we've talked about this morning, he's ready to unpack Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood. So in verse 1 we see Melchizedek is a priest king. He's the king of Salem and he's also a priest of the Most High God. Now his introduction into scripture is mysterious, and this is where I get mysterious Mel from. After Abraham defeated the kings who had captured Lot and rescued him, Abraham returns to the king's valley. At this point he's also still Abram. And so we read there, beginning in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 14. After his return from the, from the defeat of that guy whose name I'm not going to butcher, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now I stopped there because there's never a mention of Melchizedek again. I mean, he's there, he appears in the valley, it just says that he showed up and he brings bread and wine, he blesses Abram, and then he's gone. And then he gets his tenth, and then he leaves. So in verse 2, the writer begins to explicate this literal meaning of Melchizedek's name and title. He says, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Now, we should really have, and, and most translations do this, but the Greek construction here actually means he is a righteous king, one who is characterized by righteousness. The writer has already pointed out back in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9 that Jesus was exalted and crowned because he loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. We see in Psalm 72 too, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Then the writer says king of Salem means king of peace. Now there is some speculation, there's not a whole lot of evidence to support this one way or the other, but there's some speculation that Salem may refer to what eventually became Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But the author does not tie the name to Jerusalem, but he translates it here to king of peace. Now his peacefulness in Genesis is probably tied to the fact that he's not waging war. So if we were to go back to Genesis 14 and look at the whole context here, uh, we have the guy whose name I didn't pronounce. We have the king of Sodom. We have others, and they're all involved in this battle. When Melchizedek shows up, he brings bread, he brings wine, he brings blessing. He is not, as far as we can tell, engaged in the battle that's been going on. And so we see then in Isaiah things that are said about Jesus, which may also be said about Melchizedek. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Prince of Peace. Of course, this is all prophecy. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1, a king will reign righteously. Isaiah 32, verse 17, the result of righteousness will be peace. And then in Isaiah 53, verse 5, we see peace for the people of God comes through the servant of the Lord. And so it is clear from the New Testament then that this servant is also the son of David the king of Israel and of the entire world. Now this is what the theologian F.F. F. Bruce calls an outstanding example of the argument from silence. That is, Melchizedek is a type of Christ, but there's nothing said about him with regard to family, birth, or death. So when we get to verse 3, we don't have any information, and our writer is pretty clear about that. Now it sounds irresponsible when I say this is an outstanding example from the argument of the argument from silence. This sounds irresponsible, but it's not. Our author's not suggesting that Melchizedek is an angel or otherwise, or some sort of weird, you know, half-human or something like that. He's not saying that. Our writer is just not concerned with what's outside of Scripture. At this point, there might have been some, some more information out there about Melchizedek, about who Melchizedek was, and so forth, but he is making his observation and his claim based solely on what he has as scripture, and so he turns to Genesis, and Genesis records no mother, no father, no genealogy, no birth, no death, anything. 
And so to our writer, Melchizedek stands out as a priest because there's no genealogy. Now, if y'all remember to two weeks ago when I bored you all to death with that really long sheet of high priests, we saw how they were related to one another until it becomes a political office and not the office that the Lord intended it to be. If we turn to Nehemiah chapter 7 and look at verses 64 to 65, we see there that a person cannot serve as a Levitical priest unless they can show that they're genealogically qualified. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. So we have Melchizedek who appears. If he'd have been there in Nehemiah's day, he'd have been cast aside, couldn't prove his genealogy, would have been cast aside as unclean. But he appears on the scene as one who doesn't have a recorded genealogy. We don't have a birth date. We don't have a death date. But as scripture records it, he continues as a priest forever. Much like Jesus, the Son of God. Okay, but you say, Ian, we know Jesus' genealogy. If you look at the beginning of Matthew, it's all there. So how does that line up? Well, if we get to verses 13 and 14, here in chapter 7, we'll see that our writer here also knew Jesus' genealogy. And his point is not whether or not the genealogy existed, but that Christ's priesthood, like Melchizedek's priesthood, is not based on the established genealogy that Christ has. So let me put that a different way. When we look at Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, and it says that he's of the tribe of Judah, and he's from the root of Jesse, and he's in the line of David, and so forth, all of that refers to Christ's fulfillment of messianic prophecy. As the Messiah, he has to be in this line, he comes from uh, this tribe, and so forth. But his priesthood is not dependent on that genealogy, just his messianic office. And you say, well, Ian... His priesthood is included in his messianic office. And it is. But he has an eternal priesthood. Because whenever we look into the records of history, we see line after line of Aaronic and Levitical priests who have come to office and have died. And their priesthood ends at their death. But for Christ, that priesthood never ends. By virtue of his resurrection from the dead, he continues as a priest forever in contrast to the Levitical priests whose priesthood ends with their death. So in verse 4, we see that the author wants the readers to focus on the greatness of the mysterious Melchizedek. Now, it would be easy to read the Genesis narrative, and we do this fairly often, and we focus on Abraham instead of Melchizedek, because that's the point of the story anyway, right? We're here for Abram. We're not here for Melchizedek. Good, he was there. But even in recognizing Abraham, what we must also do is realize that he recognizes Melchizedek's superiority and gives him a tenth of the spoils from the war that he's just won. And so we get to verses 5 and 6 here of chapter 7, and we see that the tithes which Melchizedek received from Abraham evidently amounted to one-tenth of all the spoils of war. Now the dedication of one-tenth of the spoils of war to a deity was practiced among the Greeks and the other nations, but it is not attested for Israel, which we've already seen. Israel, of course, has a concept of tithing, 
but not of dedicating a war victory, a tenth of a war victory to God. They did, however, have a concept of a holy war, but that encompasses the whole notion of the war. It's not just part of it, it's not just a tenth of it, it's the whole shooting match. Okay, so the priesthood then is given to the sons of Levi, whom he instructs to collect a tithe from Israel. The tithe collected by the Levites was from fellow Israelites that are their brothers and sisters. But like the Levites, the rest of Israel descended from Abraham. And so the Levites then give a tenth of what they collect to the Aaronic priests. Now our author's primary focus is on the Aaronic priesthood throughout Hebrews, not the Levitical priesthood. So he speaks rather generally about them in saying that they collect a tenth from the people, strictly speaking. But we see that Melchizedek's not an Israelite. The nation hasn't been established yet. So receiving a tithe from Abraham isn't comparable to receiving a tithe from one's brothers and sisters. He's not in a line. He's not, at this point, been appointed by Scripture to receive a tithe. Abraham hasn't been appointed by Scripture to give him a tithe on the basis of his priesthood. And Melchizedek is a completely different category as one who stands outside of Israel. And yet, he collected a tenth, and he blessed Abraham. He blessed him who had the promises. And we're back now to that link between the blessings and the promises. Because the promises pledged to Abraham were dependent, at least in part, on Melchizedek's blessing. And this functions for our writer as an example of Melchizedek's greatness. So when we get to verse 7, we see uh, as great as Abraham's privileges were, by virtue of the promises he receives from God, he recognizes the superiority of Melchizedek by, yes, giving him one-tenth of the spoils, but also accepting a blessing from Melchizedek. Now the wording there in Genesis chapter 14 is important. It says, and he, we could put a bracket there and say, and Melchizedek blessed him and said, and then he goes through the blessing. Mel mediates, Mel, I have Mel in my notes. Melchizedek mediates the blessing of God Most High. He, he stands between God and Abraham and performs that communicative act, much like the high priest does when he enters the Holy of Holies and he makes atonement for the nation. He stands in for the nation between God and themselves. And then what does Christ do? We know that he is a mediator who sits at the Father's right hand, mediates on our behalf. So in verse 8, another token of Mel's superiority, I'm just going to call him Mel now, uh, Mel's superiority to the Levitical priesthood is this. Nowhere is it related that he lost his priestly office by death. So the text for our writer then testifies to a living priesthood, a priesthood that had no beginning and it had no end. And he sees that Melchizedek points toward Christ as the resurrected one whose priesthood has no beginning and has no end. And so he's asking the readers in a sense, do you want to attach yourself to priests that die? Or do you want to attach yourself to a great high priest who has conquered death and lives forever? In verses 9 to 10, he goes back to the tithe-receiving tribe of Levi, and our author points out that Levi, 
may be said himself to have paid tithes to Melchizedek in the person of Abraham. He says there, for Levi, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Mel met him. And so we have this idea of, well, it's, a, it's an Old Testament biblical idea that all of one's descendants are contained within oneself. So Abraham has within him, in some sense, Levi, all of those Levitical priests, Christ, the whole nation of Israel, and so forth. So by saying this then, the lesser order, Levi, pays a tenth to the greater order, Melchizedek. Again, the new is better than the old. All right, that is where we will stop this morning. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Methedes KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church. 